The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is Brandy Collins Dexter, who is the author of the brand new book, such a thought-provoking book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. Thank you so much for being here today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited for this conversation because I'm sure people are like, what does the title mean? I don't understand, but we're going to, we're going to break that down off the top here. So I mentioned Kanye West because black skinhead, um, this isn't like a new idea. Um, and it was also the title of Kanye West, a Kanye West, um, album, um, song, excuse me. Um, and people, when this when it was released were they had a reaction a strong reaction uh to the title um and you chose it for your book in order to sort of start down a the path of this conversation um that i think is really important to have which is black voters and perhaps disillusionment um if you will um with the left so let's first start with what the title means and how it relates to kanye west yeah, so um, so the skinheads um, were actually a subculture in uh, 1960s UK, and they were the first um, multicultural uh, subculture in the UK after many of the people from colonized countries moved to London after um, World War II. And so it was working class youth, um, black and white from the Caribbean that um, sort of gathered around music like reggae, around aesthetic. They wore like combat boots because many of them, um, you know, had working class jobs. And there was a certain amount of like disillusionment with political systems. And as that disillusionment grew and as um, more economic decline occurred, you started to see fractures in that. You started to see a type of like nationalism take shape where you get neo-Nazis, white nationalists, and these divisions within the skinhead movement. And so for me, the question of, you know, what does it mean um, to be a part of kind of like a multicultural experiment in a country and to see yourself as part of a nation and feel like you haven't necessarily uh, received the fruits of that on an economic scale, where does that take you? And so that question, this idea of disillusioned younger voters is part of the Black Skinhead song as well by Kanye West. And so that's that's kind of the theme that I brought into the book. And when Kanye came out with that song, I remember, first of all, I, you know, I'm going to put aside like my opinions about Kanye West. And even when I use my, my intersectional feminist lens, the misogyny in, in some of Kanye West's content, I'm going to put that to the side to simply do the analysis of his political sort of behavior, because I think it is 
emblematic of some interesting things that you go through in this book, which is disaffection with the left and the Democratic Party. Um, And I feel like there's something there that could and should be tapped into to explore the ways in which, I mean, I think all of us could probably talk about politics in a way that black men feel included, um, heard, seen, um, a lot of the things I was just talking about with um, Melanie Campbell about. So can you speak to how Kanye's, um, the message in his song, but also this idea of, um, you know, disaffection, (laughs) for lack of a better term, um, is coming to the forefront in this current moment in American history. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think for me too, that was a challenge, right? Because Kanye as a human is a very complex figure. Even while I was writing the book, I was just like, please stop sending me news about Kanye. (laughs) Also, please, Kanye, don't do something like super off the rails. Um, But I did want to look more at his words and him as a political figure than um, his personality, psychoanalyze him, look at his relationships, et cetera. Because when I first saw him kind of like palling around with Trump after the 2016 election um, and expressing these sentiments like um, I was canceled before cancel culture, no more living for the culture, presumably black culture, we're cultureless, like all of these comments, I found myself thinking, well, huh, first of all, I don't agree with that. I, I strongly disagree with that. And, and But also, where is this coming from? And is he the only one that thinks this? Or is this like a, a trend um, with certain voters? And so one of the things that I think we've seen, particularly over the last uh, 10 or so years, is that starting with the 2008 recession, Black people lost 60% of our wealth. That didn't come back. And with COVID, we've lost even more, I think, close to 50% of black businesses had to shut their doors. And so you're seeing people um, experience at scale a certain, like an economic recession. And I think through that feeling frustration with government and particularly local government and not feeling like they see government show up in their neighborhood, in their schools, um, and that they're carrying a lot of debt and all of these things. And so that's leading them, um, I speculate, to really have questions around, is government serving me? And particularly is the Democratic Party where black people have voted in large numbers for decades, are Democrats on you know, the local to national level doing enough for me? And I think asking some of those questions are leading people into different places to the left and right of the party, of the Democratic Party. So that's a little bit of what I'm examining in the book. I think this is a, such an important conversation. I remember, I was in a room um, at Netroots Nation. It was like probably the Black Caucus meeting, I think. I think that's the day I first met Rashad Robinson. Maybe the very <clears> first day. This I want to say this is 2010, 2009, 10, something okay. around there. Um, I, so it must have been 2010 because I think he had just – it was like the transition to Rashad. Like that was right around that moment. It was like mm. right around that period. Like he, he just either just taking over or was just about to take over. But we're in a room. There's only 10 people maybe 20, and we're all black. And this is a conference of thousands of people at Neverett's Nation, but this is the Black Caucus, so now it's like only 10 people, and we're like, oh, wow, that's not a lot of people, and let's get in a circle and, like, discuss it. Um, but one of the things somebody said at the time, and I, I never forgot it because both at the time I thought he was wrong, and I still think he's wrong, but I also think he has a point <laughs> that the Democratic Party needs to explore. 
Um, so one of the young black men in the room who was from Las Vegas, because this is the Netroots Nation in Las Vegas, like maybe like three times ago when it was in Las Vegas, because I think they've been in Las Vegas a bunch of times. But in the room, a young black man from Las Vegas says, you know, Barack Obama's been president, you know, for a couple of years now. And nothing's changed in my neighborhood. And I looked at him and I was like, you're wrong. Like, you're wrong in the sense that Barack Obama is not the mayor or the city council or the local leadership in your neighborhood. Or the governor. So like, right. Or the governor of your state. Right. And so, so many of the things that you're looking at to see, like, that change is actually happening as a result of electing a black president. Like, those, the people you should be looking at are the people in your local political leadership, not necessarily at Barack Obama, certainly, who's not going to be able to change all of the things in your neighborhood in a year and a half. But I think he had a point and I think his sentiment and where it was coming from was this idea that, you know, I think on the left, we sort of have a superficial surface level conversation about representation. And we're like, we need to elect more black people. And even I have been I've said that. But I also add the point, And I think this is where, you know, we can kind of get into it, which is what policies are those people putting forward um, to address the issues in those communities of color? So can you speak to. The source of the disaffection, like why that young black man in Las Vegas was both wrong and right. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think so, you know, a couple of a backstory of the book. I'm um, I grew up in Illinois. My family is multi-generational, you know, Chicagoan since the 1900s, great migration and all of that. And, uh, you know, in one of the actually in a couple of um, the essays, I look at kind of that that question and particularly in Chicago. So I come at this as a Chicagoan from the South side and remembering that moment when President Obama got elected and that was like peak black political power, yep. like the level of organizing that it took in South Carolina, like people forget, people weren't all in necessarily. Um, for Obama, we, we were Clinton supporters, right? And there was organizing, we had to believe in this idea that we could like change and um, that we could, win black liberation and it felt like that but president obama was coming in during the 08 recession Mm -hmm. and so there were a lot of decades of deregulation and a lot of things that had happened particularly under reagan continued you know up through the Bush years um, that people were up against. And you you saw a lot of schools leave communities like um, Chicago, a number of schools closed down in black and Latino neighborhoods. You saw a lot of businesses um, shut their doors and there wasn't necessarily like an answer for that. And part of that, as I mentioned, you know, alluded to earlier when you were talking about different decision makers is you have often democratic mayors and aldermen that are operating in Republican states. And I say that as somebody that lives in Baltimore and have had, you know, um, Larry Hogan as a Republican governor do everything he could to strip resources out of Baltimore. So this is like some of the stuff that you're up against. So people every day are walking out and seeing their neighborhoods in decline. And it becomes easy, I think, for some of the folks that I talked to in the book and for some people to feel like, but we have a Black president, we reached mm-hmm. this peak of Black power, why aren't we seeing that on the ground at scale? And that's where some of the kind of like disillusionment, that's that's the complexity of it. Like we we were able to win, but when people don't feel like they're winning every day, then it it becomes easier to kind of like critique that figure instead of some of the the other extenuating circumstances around you in the system. One of the things, and you mentioned Chicago, so I think it's actually a good segue to my next question, 
which is in one of the essays you talk about drill music and I mm-hmm. actually want you to start with a definition of what that is because I'm not assuming that everybody listening to Progress at 8 o'clock in the morning knows what drill music is. <laughs> um, no, no, for real. I mean, it's people. No, I know. I know it's real. So, so, so first, so help us understand what drill music is uh, for those who don't know. And also why the rise of drill music would happen and coincide um, with the election of somebody like President Obama, because that I think is really, really fascinating and interesting to think about, um, you know, how art like that would be inspired. Yeah. <laughs> like, what inspires that? Yeah. So drill music and and is is a music and subculture of hip hop, um, and it started in Chicago around uh, 2008, 2010. Um, when you listen to some of the lyrics, it's a it's a global music form at this point. You can go online and um, see drill artists in like Australia, UK. There's a lot of different sounds that people have heard anything about. Um, it pop smoke, maybe, maybe not, but that, he was, a, you know, a, a drill artist. But it's it's a little bit an extension of gangster rap, I would say. But really, what they're talking about is, uh, you know, protecting their community, protecting the hood. It it like kind of upends this idea of the American dream, where you're supposed to want to kind of like pull yourself up by your quote unquote bootstraps, fraught term, right? Um, and like move out. Um, move into the suburbs, have this wonderful life for your family. Um, and for these folks that are that are living in neighborhoods that are like falling apart, that are in deep economic decline, they're talking about, you know, staying in their neighborhood, about protecting and fortifying their neighborhood. And there's a lot of violence tied to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of critiques of local systems within that. And so this is a music form that's coming up in Chicago the same time um, that the, that, that, massive loss is happening in the south side of Chicago that droves of people are leaving, black people are leaving the south side of Chicago for the suburbs. And you're seeing, you know, things fall apart, schools are getting shut down. And then you see the rise of President Obama from the south side of Chicago um, as this like, you know, uh, kind of like iconic figure for, you know, black people for Chicago and the tension of that. Mm. And, um, And so I think like that gets channeled through this music that's aggressive, it's hard, it's dangerous. Like this is one of the most, I think, surveilled art forms as well. So a lot of the artists um, end up in jail. One of the subjects that I talked to in the book, he was being surveilled by the police and he kept a side note referring to Obama as a as a FBI agent. And I was kind of like, it, he, I mean, I guess technically the president is over the FBI, but right. it, it, like, again, spoke to this, like, again, this like disillusionment with all types of leadership that people felt hadn't shown up for them. And I mean, if you read a book, right, if you've read a book in your life, you know that like the idea that, um, you know, there wasn't some shenanigans happening at the FBI historically when it comes to black people, like, I mean, anybody that's read a history book knows that part of what they're saying there's like a grain of truth right Mm -hmm. but they're they're sort of aiming it at the wrong target um well at least that's what i think i mean i think that like there's a (laughs) lot you know like everything is obama's fault that sort of became one of my ongoing jokes in the Obama years like or i'd be like thanks obama like for everything like he's it's his fault is his fault everything is his fault and i want to thank him for everything that's happening too so Mm. um one of the other questions i had for you um and we have three minutes i want to talk about conservative black people so the other thing you discuss in the book um is like you know black people 
that support Donald Trump, black people that um, are in the far right, Candace Owens and, and folks like that. I mean, you know, I laugh at the blacks for Trump because I'm pretty sure like those people, they like gave them those T-shirts and they're like, please stand in front of the camera. Um, you know, at least some of them. But there is sort of this thing that and you already alluded to it where black um, men sort of end up at both ends of the spectrum politically not so much in the moderate middle mushy middle but um they can sort of get um caught up in some of the ideas on the right can you talk a bit about like blacks for trump and how that analysis factors into this larger conversation about what black men and black voters want and need and are talking about um you know as they're disaffected yeah, I mean, I think it's like, yeah, of course, worth noting that men in general tend to be more conservative. And I, I think, as you pointed out in the last segment, more black men than any other group still, you know, voted for Biden in 2020. So that's all of that is like sort of, uh, you know, noteworthy. But, um, you know, so some of the things that we've seen are that black people have tended to be conservative. I think there's this idea of um, hyper-capitalism and building black capital free from government, a kind of romanticization of uh, you know, rebuilding Black Wall Streets that are driving, uh, you know, Black people, particularly on the local level, to see the Republican Party as this empty vessel that can be taken over in local politics. And so that's what a lot of the folks that I was talking to. Mm. Um, and in 20, going into the midterms this November, um, over the course of the year, there were 81 Black Republicans running for office, um, running for Congress, some of them serious candidates, some of them not. But I think we, I, I know we have to wrap, but like, I think the idea of Candace Owens as, uh, or Larry Elder, this type of black Republican, those are kind of the ones that are the face that provide cover for white supremacist talking points. But a lot of the folks that I were talking to were people that were more interested in what does it mean to build black capital and restore black business on the local level. Mm, that's a really, really interesting piece of this. And I think, I mean, I'd love to have you back whenever you're available, because we can continue to have these conversations, yes, not even please. just directly related to the book, but everybody should get the book Black Skinhead, because these these essays are, I think, they push they push you a little bit, right? Because, you know, they think the premise, like, is Kanye West right? You know, I'm just automatically gonna be like, no, but nope. then, I, you know, <laughs> no, but then I'm gonna read it. And then I'm gonna marinate on on a lot of the analysis and, um, and all of the ways in which you're framing these conversations and the people you're talking to. Um, because, you know, it's not just saying like, it's like in 2010, I didn't just outright, I mean, I, I sort of in the moment was like that, you're wrong. It's not Obama's fault. Your neighborhood isn't better in two years. Like that's not his job. But also you're right because the disaffection that that comment um, is expressing um, mm -hmm. is coming from a place that is genuine and based in, in, in a reality. And I think the Democratic Party, the left, anybody in leadership has to has to grapple mm -hmm. with that. They can't just ignore it and pretend it's not happening and then be like, oh, it's black men's fault. We didn't win this election when you didn't talk mm -hmm. to them or deliver them any message that was going to tell them what you were going to do to help them. Like, mm -hmm. if you're not talking to those voters, why would they come? Um, mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Brandy, for being here this morning. Brandy Collins Dexter. The book is Black Skinhead and you should buy it. It is so good. Thank you again for being here. Please stay safe. Thank you. You too. Take care.
Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. <laughs>